Today, we're going to continue looking in the book of Revelation. We're getting close to the end. I know some weeks it may not seem that way. seems like we're in Revelation forever. <laughs> but we're getting close to the end. Um, today, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 16. So you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, or you can use the Bible in the pew rack. It'll be on page 1037. Uh, but we'll be in Revelation chapter 16. And what we've seen in the book of Revelation that is, to so many, scary and uh, confusing and odd, um, but what we've seen is a glimpse of God's patient mercy in wanting all people to be saved. Um, as we have gone through Revelation, we see John, who was the last disciple alive, we believe at this point, having been arrested and taken to this prison island and left there, John was given a vision of Jesus. You know, he was one of Jesus' disciples, but John hadn't seen Jesus for decades and decades. We believe this may have been somewhere around the AD 90s, somewhere in there. So he hadn't seen Jesus for 60-ish years. Um, it has been a long time. And Jesus comes in a vision and says, John, I'm going to give you a word to give to the Christian church, and then I'm going to give you a vision of the end times, and I want you to write everything down you see and hear. So John takes that commission, and he begins to write. Jesus gives him a word for the churches uh, in uh, Revelation 2 and 3. Then Revelation 4 and 5, God gives him a vision of the throne room of God, and John writes all that down. And then he begins to see some stuff take place in ushering in the end of the world. Jesus comes out and takes a scroll from the hand of God as God is sitting on his throne. And the scroll is sealed in seven places. And as Jesus breaks each one of those seals and opens up the scroll, something happens, something dramatic, some kind of uh, devastation in the world. And at the seventh seal is popped open, seven angels come out. Each angel is given a trumpet. And as each angel blows a trumpet, something else happens. Some other kind of devastation takes place in the world. And John's writing about all this. And then as the seventh trumpet is blown, we get kind of a, a break in the middle of the book of Revelation. And John begins to describe some of the individuals who will be taking part in the end times. An individual like Satan taking part. He's going to talk about the, he talks about the Antichrist. He talks about the Antichrist's right-hand man, the false prophet. He talks about the false prophet setting up this, this, this idol to worship of the Antichrist. And here, uh, where we're going to get in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 16, is once this kind of interlude has happened and John's describing these uh, individuals taking place, uh, we get a, a, a brief glimpse of what occurs when that seventh trumpet that he mentioned a few chapters ago happens. Um, we're going to see some specifics that happen, and then he's going to start talking about some other individuals. So he takes a moment to talk chronologically, seventh trumpet blown, this stuff happens, and then he takes another break and talks about some other individuals that take part in the end time. So let's take a look at that. Revelation chapter 16. So he goes back to describing the seventh trumpet has just been blown, and this is what he sees. Starting in verse 1. He says, Then I heard... A loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, 
Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful, painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. So seventh trumpet is blown. Seven more angels come out. They're each given a bowl. In the bowl is the uh, what at the end of chapter uh, 15 is described, the undiluted wrath of God. And they're supposed to go and pour out these bowls on the earth, and something's going to occur. So angel number one takes his bowl, and he pours it, on the earth, and it says, uh, harmful, painful sores. Now, those words, harmful, painful, the, literally mean, harmful means evil uh, in the original language, and painful uh, means uh, harsh or difficult. So these evil and harsh sores, similar as we're going to see as these bowls are being poured out, these seven bowls are being poured out, these plagues that are going to be poured out uh, many of them are identical to the plagues in Egypt. These sores are very similar to the boils that break out on the Egyptians uh, in Exodus. And so it says these sores break out, these evil, uh, harsh sores. Un uh, the uh, people who are unrepentingly committing these evil and harsh sinful acts experience the evil and harsh results of that sin physically on their skin. And so that's the first angel. Second angel comes out, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Now this, this isn't something, you know, I mean, the blood in the water, that happened in Egypt, yes, but this is something similar that's already happened in the book of Revelation. Back in Revelation chapter 8, it said a third of the sea became blood, and a third of all the creatures in the sea died. And now what we see here in, in, in verse 3 of chapter 16, it says everything in the sea dies. Everything. What we saw last week is these seven angels with these seven bowls are, are bringing in the end of all of the punishment. Because when they get done, that is the end. When these seven angels finish pouring out all of their bowls of wrath, there's nothing else that's going to be poured out on the people. That will be the end of everything at that point. And so here, uh, angel number two pours out his bowl and everything in the sea dies. Because everything's about to end very shortly. Uh, verse four. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. And they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So now, angel three pours out his bowl of wrath on springs of water, rivers, really the, the fresh water. And so angel two, all of the salt water received blood and, and all the creatures died. Now all the fresh water has been turned blood and all those creatures die. And it would seem the people are really doomed now. I mean, there's no water anywhere to be found because of all the death and destruction that has covered the earth. But we know when angel seven pours out his bowl, that's the end. So there's not really a whole lot of time left anyway. This is the very end of the end of the end here. 
And uh, then God is praised. Praised for this being the end, that the end is coming. Verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Now we see here, really, as we have seen earlier in the book of Revelation, really the purpose behind each one of these things happening. It would seem, when people were just reading this, you would say, okay, well, God's just, you know, being spiteful, and he's just whipping people left and right, and these are judgments that he's judging people. Um, But what's going on here, as you see there at the end, the purpose behind each one of these things happening is to turn people back and help make them repent, make them turn to Jesus, make them believe in the same way that if your kid does something wrong, you're going to issue some sort of discipline, not because you like giving discipline. If you do, we need to have a conversation. But to turn your kid away from doing the wrong thing, to keep them from running out into the street when their ball goes in the street, to keep them from trying to touch the stove when the stove is hot. You, 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 you issue some sort of discipline to protect them, to guide them, to keep them safe, to make them into better people. And so it's the same thing God's doing here with, with all of these things happening, with the, uh, after the seals were broken, after the trumpets were blown, and now as these bowls are being poured out, it's not because God is just trying to punish people. It's because as, uh, the purpose there, the inverse of what happens there, they don't repent, they don't give him glory, they curse his name instead of praise his name, is these things happening is so that they will turn away from that stuff. And they will repent, and they will give him glory. But there is a set mindset among the vast majority that they will not do it. They curse him. They blame God for their suffering. The name of the God who has power over these plagues. They they, they blame God for what's happening happening to them. I mean... As believers in Christ, we know that the world we live in and all of the evil that's in it and all of the pain we experience, all the grief we experience is, is a direct result of it being a broken world because of sin. Because of sin. That God's perfect plan was for the world to be perfect and there not be sin and there not be death and there not be pain and there not be addiction and there not be grief and there not be destruction. But sin broke that perfect system. And so we still live in the, perfect, in, in the imperfect system in the broken system, and we will until the end comes here in just a few chapters. And in the in-between time, the reason God didn't just wipe out the earth and start over right now is he's attempting to bring as many people to Christ as possible. That's why we see throughout the book of Revelation, he, did, you know, he does those seven seals are broken and stuff happens, and he gets to the seventh seal, and the, the angels with the trumpets come out. It's as though, as I said a few weeks ago, it's as though God gets to the end of it and says, okay, I'm going to give you a little more time. It's like when you're doing a countdown for one of your kids. So you better get in here. Five, four, three, two, one, three quarters, one half, one quarter, one eighth. And, you know, you're giving them a little more time, a little more grace. That's kind of what God's doing. He's giving people a little more grace. But there's still, as we see there in that verse, nine, a bunch will not repent. So angel number five with his bowl, verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. 
People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. So we have that again. They don't repent. So angel five pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And the beast is the Antichrist. So bowl five is poured on the throne of the beast, the symbol of his power and authority. Um, and, and it is, uh, as a result of that, darkness, his kingdoms, uh, the, his entire kingdom is plunged, it says there, into darkness. And as a direct result of the darkness, the people begin to gnaw on their tongues in anguish. Kind of like you, you may have heard in other parts of scripture, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Great pain, great difficulty, and their only response is, is a uh, response of anxiety, gnawing on their tongues. They're, they're confused, they're scared, they're fearful, and this is how it comes out in them. And they cursed God again because of their pain and their sores, and they do not repent. They refuse to repent. Now that word repent literally means to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought. Thought about sin, thought about righteousness. A complete change of one's way of life as a result of a change of mindset, as a result of a change of heart. And so these people will not change their hearts, will not change their minds, and so they will not change their activity, will not change their behavior, will not change their way of life. Uh, and so as has happened thus far, the breaking of the seals, the blowing of the trumpets, now with the pouring of the bowls, uh, these events are trying to get people to repent, trying to get people to change, but they're refusing to change. Honestly, they're refusing to turn to Jesus. But it is only through Jesus that change comes. Change only comes with a recognition of the power of Jesus in our lives. We can have all the willpower in the world and still succumb to repeated habitual sin over and over and over again. Because change only comes with a recognition of the power of Jesus in our lives. Anybody have trouble waking up in the morning? Anybody set more than one, one alarm in the morning? Anybody ever set more than one alarm and sleep right through all of them? Chief of the list right here. I can remember many nights going to sleep saying, Jesus, wake me up in the morning because I cannot do it on my own. I'm going to wake up and those alarms are still going off. I know every single one of them and I'm just going to sit there and just hit the stop button on all of them. I need your help. Change only comes with the recognition of the power of Jesus in our lives. Only with Jesus can it happen. We can't change our hearts on our own. We're incapable of it. Jesus himself said it. Matthew 26, 41. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want to, as Paul said in Romans. Jared talked about it Wednesday. He said, I want to do the things that God wants me to do. But the things that I hate are the things I end up doing. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Change only comes with the recognition of the power of Jesus in our lives. We need Jesus to provide the strength to make the change. We need Jesus to be able to provide the strength to change anything in our lives. To, to change our hearts enough to forgive the person we don't want to forgive. The person we still have ill feelings for whenever their, their name crosses our minds or crosses our news feed. And, and all we think are, are you know, not 
Christian thoughts about that individual. It's only through the power of Jesus that forgiveness can come. It's only through the power of Jesus addiction can be overcome. It's only through the power of Jesus that grief can be not overcome, but made a way through. Only with the power of Jesus can we make it through this world at all. At all. Change only comes with the recognition of the power of Jesus in our lives. Look at verse 12. Angel 6 steps up. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, the Euphrates River was the boundary of the Roman Empire. Beyond the Euphrates was the unknown land. You know, it was a, it was a natural boundary, uh, but if the, if the river was blocked up, if the river was dried up, there'd be a great common fear among the entire empire, especially those who lived along the river. Uh, a fear of a great unknown enemy crossing that river to come attack, to conquer what had already been conquered. And so this way is cleared for this, this unknown enemy to come in. The last obstacle is removed for that enemy to come and march uh, on the armies of the world. Look verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now the dragon is Satan. So you got Satan, who's empowered the beast, the Antichrist, and then you got the false prophet, the Antichrist right-hand man, these three. And it says three unclean spirits came out of their mouths, so through their words and what they spoke. Frogs, historically, in ancient civilizations, they were dirty and evil. Um, and so the, the words that are being spoken here are dirty and evil. Uh, verse 14. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So in some capacity... Through these words that are being spoken, evil is going to go out, and it says perform signs. So uh, as we have seen in other parts of the book of Revelation, the enemy attempts to mimic what God can do. And so they're going to go, and they're going to do these signs, uh, possibly what we might classify as miracles, um, magic tricks, some others might call, uh, in the presence of kings around the world in an effort to unify them and assemble them to make a great war against God. And so that's what they're doing. You've got Satan, you've got the Antichrist, you've got the false prophet sending out these uh, evil words to assemble the world, unify the world to make war against God in some capacity. And this might seem like a hopeless scenario, you know, that, the, that there's going to be a great war that's going to break out against God, and if it's against God, it's against everybody who is on God's side, which would be us, believers, followers of Christ. It's already been a fearful time. Uh, we've seen in the book of Revelation that it's at, at certain points been illegal to be a Christian. And now flat out war is going to be made against God and all his people. And God, uh, you can almost feel, as we're going to read this next verse, God sensing a spirit of fear in, in Christians reading this. And so he gives a little interjection in verse 15. He says, behold, I am coming like a thief. That doesn't mean he's coming to steal. That means unexpectedly, quickly, surprisingly. Blessed 
is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, this is hope being interjected in, in this way. You know, you might be a little confused about the going about naked and being seen exposed, but when people would go to bed back then, they didn't wear clothes. And so if a thief comes in the middle of the night or if something abrupt happens in the middle of the night and you jump up to take care of it, that's what he's talking about. He says, so you need to keep watch, he says. What's the language there? Who stays awake. Stays awake. Uh, that literally means to be alert and watchful. To pay attention. Be alert and be prepared. Be alert and be ready. Uh, get ready because the end is about to hunt, come, Jesus is saying. So you need to be ready when it comes. I'm coming. He says, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming fast. So pay attention to all the signs. Pay attention to everything I've said thus far and get ready. Get ready for what's coming. Don't leave stuff undone. Get ready for what's coming because it's happening. So be alert and ready by leaving nothing intentionally undone. Don't wait to tell your neighbor about Jesus. Don't wait to instruct your kids in the way of the Lord. Don't wait to follow God. Don't say, I'll do all that stuff when I get my life right. We're not going to get our life right until we get to heaven. So get, you know, follow God now in whatever capacity. You're going to slip up. You're going to stumble. You're not going to be perfect. But make effort. Make effort to follow Christ. Do everything you can. He says there, be alert and ready. Be watchful. Pay attention. Don't leave it until tomorrow. Don't leave it until next time. You may be thinking, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of business next time. I'll tell that person about Jesus next time. Maybe you're not a believer. I'll believe in Jesus next time. Well, there may not be a next time. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed to make it to our good lunch here in just a little bit. Don't leave it undone spiritually. Take care of it. Settle it. Don't leave your relationship with somebody else undone. If there's unforgiveness, deal with it. Be alert and ready. Alert and ready. Because you never know what's coming. You never know when it's coming. Be alert and ready by leaving nothing intentionally undone. I remember the story of the great evangelist in the late 1800s, D.L. Moody. You ever heard of D.L. Moody? Um, well, he was a, before he was this big-time evangelist, he was leading a church in Chicago. He still went around and did his evangelist thing, but uh, this is, there was a, an event that happened that changed the course of his life as a pastor. He was preaching through the uh, uh, Passion Week, death and resurrection of Jesus, and he got to the point of Jesus dying, and he got to the end of his sermon. He said, when he repeats the story, he says, I preached Jesus into the grave. And then I told the people in the crowd, y'all come back next week and I'll tell you what you can do with Jesus. He says, right about then, they heard this alarm bell going off in the street, Chicago, 1800s. It was the great Chicago fire that burned the city, including his church, to the ground. Moody said, when all dust was settled and I was walking through the, the burned, charred remains of my church, he said, I dropped to my knees feeling overwhelming shame. I had told those people, he says, come back next week and see what you can do with Jesus. He says, I'll never see that same crowd again. I'll never see them again. He says, so he made it a point to do two things that day. One, 
he never went to sleep at night on any day from that point to the day he died without telling somebody about Jesus. Every single day he told somebody about Jesus. There was one time he got in bed and it was like 11 p.m. and he realized he hadn't told somebody that day. So he got back up, got dressed, and went out into the street to tell somebody about Jesus. The guy rebuffed him, rejected him, but came to his house a few weeks later and says, I was that guy on that street corner you told about Jesus and I got saved this morning. He never went a day without telling somebody about Jesus. His other commitment to God was, every time I get up to speak your word in front of a church in, in any capacity, I'm going to share the gospel. No matter what I'm preaching on, I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to tell them what they can do with Jesus. Him dying, him raising from the dead, granting eternal life in heaven. He says, I'm going to do it every single time because I don't know if I'm ever going to see them again. I don't know if they're ever going to hear the gospel again. He says, I'm going to do it every time. And God used D.L. Moody and that commitment to change the world from that point on. I mean, you can trace it. We've, I've mentioned it before through generations beyond him of people sharing the gospel. Billy Graham would not have gotten saved and led hundreds of thousands, millions around the world to Christ if Moody hadn't made that commitment that day because of who got saved from Moody's ministry and who got saved from that ministry and then who was led to speak because of this connection to this guy and that guy got saved and then that guy shared the gospel with Billy Graham. You never know what God can do with someone who is willing to follow him, willing to not leave something undone. So be alert and be ready for whatever God's gonna do. Uh, verse 16, so they're gathering for war. And they assembled them, the nations of the world, at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. I know you all have heard that word before, right? Armageddon. It's in Bruce Willis. But what's interesting about this word Armageddon is when you break it down, the word means Mount of Megiddo. And what makes us so interesting is in the Middle East, there's a place called the city of Megiddo. There's a place called the plain of Megiddo that's right by the city. There's no mountain of Megiddo. There's no mountain of Megiddo. And so Armageddon, meaning Mount of Megiddo, uh, he says there's going to be a great battle there, a great war there. But the place doesn't exist his, historically or geographically now in this capacity. What this could be, I mean, we know the city of Megiddo, the plain of Megiddo, that area is known for a lot of battles having been fought there, even though there's no physical, actual mountain there. And so using that word Megiddo or Armageddon, Mount of Megiddo, it could be bringing to mind of all of the readers of this passage, great war, great battle that's being fought. And the one that's coming is going to be even greater than has ever been fought before on that famous battle plane. It's going to be more intense. It's going to be uh, 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 something beyond what they've ever experienced before. Maybe on a spiritual plane. Maybe it will be physical. I don't know. We'll find out. But the point is, these nations in some capacity will gather to fulfill the battle strategy of Satan against God and all of his followers. And that was the sixth angel pouring out his bowl of wrath. And then we get to angel number seven. Now remember, he has said, these seven angels pouring out their bowls are the final things that are going to happen. 
before the end happens, before the judgment comes. Uh, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. The air was often thought of as the dwelling place of, of demons. And then this voice comes out of the throne in the temple, God's presence. It is God. It's coming from the throne saying, it is done. It's very similar to Jesus calling out on the cross, it is finished. Angel 7 pours out his bowl, last of all of this bad devastation. And God cries out, it's done. It's over. Verse 18, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. So this incredible things that are happening. And what's fascinating to me about verse 18 is this stuff that happens, the rumblings, peals of thunder, great earthquake that has, you know, is greater than anything that's ever existed before. It doesn't seem to occur as a direct result of the bowl being poured out. It happens as a direct result of the words of God saying it's over. It's over. It's done. And then this crazy destruction occurs. And as a result of that crazy destruction, look at verse 19. The great city was split into three parts. And the cities, all the cities, of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now the great city is Babylon. And Babylon, in the book of Revelation, is uh, uh, the world culture. It's representative of the evil, um, Satan-backed uh, uh, world culture. And so it, at this point, is split into three parts. It, it, it is this great devastation, and all the cities of the, the world uh, have fallen, uh, and God remembers how evil this world culture is, and the last of his wrath poured out here on this city. Uh, verse 21, and great hailstone, or I'm sorry, verse 20, and every island fled away, and no mountain were to be, no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. So not only the earthquakes, not only the lightning, not only the rumblings, now the, all the cities in the world are, are, are collapsing and falling apart. And now you've, you've got uh, hailstones, 100 pounds each, shooting from the sky. Kind of a scary, I mean, there, there's no safety here. I mean, you could try to hide from hail in your house, but if it's a 100-pound hailstone, your house isn't very safe. I mean, it's, it's blowing through that house. You say, well, I've got, uh, I'm getting in the bunker under the concrete. I mean, a 100-pound hailstone is going to do some damage to some concrete. This, is this going to be some crazy time, some, some crazy stuff happening? It's going to be scary, but it's also an indication that this is the end. There's no more beyond what's happening. It's so severe, he says. And then we get a glimpse in chapter 17. Um, let me kind of tell you something. In the way ancient Jews would write, sometimes they would write an overview of what happened, and then in the next section of their writing, they would dive into a specific point of what they wrote about. Chief example, Genesis chapter 1 talks about the creation of the world, days 1 through 7, right? And then Genesis chapter 2 dives into day 6, 
God creating Adam and Eve. So an overview and then something specific. And so here in, in chapter 16, we get an overview of the seven bowls of wrath being poured out. And now in chapter 17, you know, 16 ended with Babylon being destroyed. And now 17, we're going to dive in to a little bit of information about Babylon and its destruction. Uh, verse 17. Verse 1. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. That's Babylon. They're referring to Babylon, the, the world culture, as a, as a prostitute. Leading people away from being faithful to God. Uh, who is seated on many waters. He'll, he'll tell us what that means in a minute. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. So Babylon, the, the world culture, has led people away from the one true God into worship of something else. And on that something else, the people of the world have become drunk on that thing, have, have drunk so much of it that it has taken over their lives, this evil world culture, this evil religious system that's been set up. It has far-reaching strength and influence on the lives of everyone in the world. Verse 3, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Now, before we get into the description here of this, of this woman, the scarlet beast Red beast with seven heads and ten horns. Uh, that is a description from earlier in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 13. This is the exact description of the Antichrist. He's scarlet, he's red, uh, and he's got this many horns and he's got this many heads. So this is the Antichrist. He's, uh, this woman, the world culture, is riding on the back of the Antichrist. Antichrist is the one who's going to bring this into the world. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Now, the description of the woman, uh, she's wearing purple and scarlet. She's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. This is what first century woman, women would wear if they were prostitutes, the way she's being described here, being ushered in on the back of this beast. So it's re-emphasizing what has already been said about her, leading people away from the, being faithful to God. Uh, verse 5, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So as the mother, she's not only doing the thing, leading people away from being faithful, she's creating others to also lead people away from being faithful. She's producing many more that are like her in her evil, this world culture. Uh, verse 6. And I saw the woman, again, Babylon, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. So drunk on the blood of the saints. She's not literally drinking blood here, the world culture. It's talking about killing Christians. And not just killing Christians, but being drunk on the killing of Christians. She likes it so much that she can't stop doing it. 
the world culture, killing Christians. And John says, when I saw her, I marveled at her. That's not John was amazed, like, wow, look what she's doing. That's not John's response. He is, is marveling here. He is taken aback at the extent of the depravity that's going on, which is saying a lot because John lived in the first century when Rome was in charge and killing Christians was a regular activity. And even in the midst of that, John sees what's going on and he's still taken aback. It still overwhelms him how bad it's going to get. Christians will be hunted because of their loyalty to Jesus. Verse 7. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carry her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Now that's a description that we've already seen in Revelation. Antichrist, it has already told us, is going to appear to die and appear to raise from the dead. Again, trying to copy the acts of Jesus. And in so doing, get people to follow him more readily. And so that's the description of this beast, the Antichrist, is going to appear to die and come back, in this case, from the bottomless pit, which is where uh, uh, the, all the, of the evil resides and coming into the world. And the dwellers of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is about to come. So the people of the world, the unbelievers of the world, uh, will not know that this is a great deception. And they will so willingly follow that deception, follow the beast, the Antichrist, and his world system that he's going to set up. And that is really, for us Christians reading the book of Revelation, that's why we have to understand the depth of the urgency of evangelism. That's why we've got to tell people about Jesus. Because the end is coming. The end is coming quickly. So that as many people as possible will be able to resist the, the deception that the enemy is going to bring in in the end times. You think you can look at the world today and see people already being deceived by the evil in the world culture? that certain things are what you should be pursuing instead of pursuing what's right, pursuing Jesus. Verse 9. He says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads on the beast are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, that's an interesting way to phrase it um, because Rome itself was often spoken of as sitting on seven hills, seven mountains. Uh, it's greatly debated in history what those specific seven hills are, but nonetheless, Rome, the world culture at the time, the evil world culture at the time, was seated in this way. And he says, okay, this is what it is. Uh, they are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Verse 10. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Now, we don't really know some specifics about what he's talking about here. If he's talking about Rome, Rome's had a lot more than five kings at this point. And maybe he's talking about 
you know, worldwide empires? Well, there, there's been a few. Uh, there's probably been more than, than these seven. Uh, than seven. Uh, and so it could be that. But what specifically God's talking about, we don't really know. We can speculate to, as long as the day is. But the point is, if we were supposed to know, he would have told us. If we were supposed to know, he would have laid it out. All we should know is this is coming. And we need to trust God in the midst of what's coming. Even if it's uncertain, even if it, we don't know, even if it's scary, we've got to trust him in the middle of all of it. He says, five of the kings came and went. One king is going on right now, uh, and, and one is going to come, but he's only going to stay a little while. Look at verse uh, 11. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, eighth king. But it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Now, it would seem that this is kind of difficult for John to describe. Uh, he says, the beast, the Antichrist, is king number eight. I know I said there's only seven kings, but he's king number eight. He's part of, king number, he's part of the seventh kingdom, but he's kind of like his own category over here because he's the last one. He's going to bring in uh, the destruction of the world. He's going to usher in this world system, and it's all going to be over because of him. So he's part of seven, but he's really kind of eight. He's, he's his own situation going on here, but ultimately he will be defeated. Verse 12, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings. So we got a whole new set of kings. We had seven kings, now we got ten kings. These have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, so a short period of time, together with the beast. So let's, let's try to picture this, okay? So the end's coming. You got beast up there. You got Antichrist. He's going to receive authority. And then the, you got 10 kings around the world who are going to receive authority over their kingdoms at about the same time. But they're going to receive their, their authority for a very short period of time. He, he calls it one hour here, symbolic of a short period of time, for one specific reason. Verse 13. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So the only reason these ten kings, which also could mean ten as a number of, of, of evil completion, of, of evil fulfillment over the whole world, uh, the, the, the point of these kings, these kingdoms having authority and power is to give all of their authority to the Antichrist. That's the only reason they have it. That's why he says it's for one hour, for a short period. They're going to get authority and they're going to sign it over to Antichrist and he's going to rule everything. And we know who's behind him running the strings. It is Satan, the dragon. Verse 14, now unified and assembled, verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb, who is Jesus, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called the chosen, are called and chosen and faithful. So ten kings surrender their kingdoms, the beast assembles to make war on Jesus, and we, and we don't know how that's going to look. Whether it's going to be a physical war. If it's a physical war, how do they make war on Jesus? Jesus physically isn't on the earth at this point. Uh, but some way they're going to make war on Jesus. But Jesus is going to overcome them, be victorious over them. Uh, verse 15. Well, just as an aside, it says Jesus is going to be victorious over them. We get a, a more specific description of this in uh, Revelation 19. I won't look at today, but... Uh, very shortly we will, uh, of Jesus coming and fighting the assembled armies and overcoming them. Verse 15. And the angel said to me, 
The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Now that's interesting. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So the waters that are under the world system are the people that have built the world system up. Antichrist brought world system in, set it up. The people uh, uh, drank on the world system, made, were made wealthy by the world system, were corrupted by the world system. And then it says they will hate the world system and bring it to destruction themselves. Burn it up with fire. Verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So God's purposes and timing will be fulfilled even by those who set themselves up in opposition to God. We can try to run from God all day long, but at the end of the day, his will is going to have its way. And the end is going to come and he will be victorious. However we get to that point, it's going to happen. You can't fight God forever. He's coming. One day we're all going to stand before him. We can't get away from that. And he will win. You see, the common purpose here through all of this destruction isn't the destruction of the people. That's not God's purpose. There is destruction that is purposed. And that destruction is supposed to be of the corruption. Destruction of the sin. But it's supposed to bring the people back to Jesus. And notice, in each one of these instances when this authority rises, it's God who allows the authority to have any sort of power at all. All authority originates with God. And so he does that with these ten kings who are going to give their power to the Antichrist. They are allowed to have authority by God. God allows it to occur. And then Babylon, the, the prostitute, the woman, the world system, the world's religious system is going to have this influence that reaches and covers the whole world. And they think these kings, the world system, thinks that they can consolidate all of their power to fight Jesus. They think they can bring it all together and they can fight against Jesus and who he is through any means necessary. But there in verse 14, we saw Jesus has power that is greater than all of them. Because Jesus is greater. He's greater than everything. Anything that would set itself up in opposition to what God wants done, Jesus is greater. No amount of, of consolidated opposition can overcome what Jesus is going to accomplish. If you're willing to follow Jesus and do what he would have in your life, nothing will stop you. It may be difficult. It may be hard. The enemy's going to come and he's going to fight. He'll bring health scares. He'll bring financial issues. He'll bring all those problems. But if you're willing to follow Jesus because he is greater, you will get through. Life's not going to be easy. Life's going to be even harder for you. Harder for you. You ever remember playing video games? The further you would get, 
the more levels you would go through, the harder it would get. You could quit on level one, and it's easy for you because you quit. But if you want to go far, it's going to get harder. If you want to go far with Jesus, it's going to get harder, but Jesus is greater than the hardness that's in this world. He said in John chapter 16, I have overcome the world. I've overcome it already. So if we follow him, he's already overcome. He's already been victorious because he is greater than anything we're going to face here. You may think, okay, but the thing I'm facing, like, preacher man, the thing I'm facing is, is big and it's difficult and it's uncertain and I don't know how it's going to be accomplished. And, and, and the thing I'm facing, it's got all these people lined up on, on its side and it's against me and all the money's over there and, and all the good health is over there and all the easy life is over there. And I'm over here, Jesus, trying to follow you and everything's hard. Everything's bad. Nothing's going my way. But Jesus is greater. Paul writes about that. He says, uh, uh, this is all difficult. I begged God three times to take this difficulty out of my life, but God told me I'm not taking it away because my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough for you to make it through today. My grace is enough. Or if you go and read the Psalms, right? If you go and read David's Psalms particularly, or Asaph too, some, some of his, but David specifically, when you read in some of David's Psalms, you see he starts out some of his Psalms in a bad mood. Talking about how bad life is. Saying, God, why did you allow these 15 people to, to do the stuff they're doing? God, I'm just trying to follow you, and these people have set up in opposition to me, and they're spreading rumors, and they're spreading gossip, and they've come after my kids, and they've come after one, my, my, my family, and they won't stop. And David gets pretty, pretty mean. He's like, God, you, you knock all their teeth out. God, you make their kids to the fifth generation have problems with their toes. God, you do all this stuff. And David, but... I urge you, if you're reading one of David's, don't stop in the middle of the psalm because you'll be like, I'm going to start praying for that. God, you, you cut all their tires. Don't kill them, but like maim them just a little bit. Don't, don't pray like that. Because if you read David's psalms, he starts off that way, but then he gets recalibrated halfway through the psalm. Because he begins to see God is greater than his situation. He begins to praise God. He says, God, this is all going on, and it's bad, and it's horrible, and I can't stand these people. But God, you're greater. God, you came through for me then. You're going to come through for me now. God, you delivered. My God, your love, it, it, it endures through all things, and I praise you as a result. God, I will follow you all the days of my life. David doesn't stop and, and, and dwell in the opposition. He always makes a beeline for that phrase. He is greater every time, every time. He, may, he goes straight for it. Yes, this is bad, and it's hard, and it's difficult. Jesus told me it would be, but Jesus is greater than the badness. Jesus is greater than the difficulty. Jesus is greater than those people who've set themselves up in opposition. Jesus is greater than the financial struggle. Jesus is greater than the health thing, than the phone call the doctor brought. Jesus is greater than the grief. Jesus is greater than the addiction. Jesus is greater than the anxiety. Jesus is greater. So if Jesus is greater, do I need to put my eyes on the problems or put my eyes on the solution? <laughs> That doesn't mean Jesus is going to fix all your problems. Jesus will help you get through your problems. He'll help you get through your problems. He'll help you make it to tomorrow. Because Jesus is greater than today. So 
Where do you find yourself in your spiritual journey? Do you intentionally align and associate and affiliate with Jesus? Or do you sometimes struggle with that? Struggle to align with Jesus in, in, in walking through the difficulties of this life? Are you alert and ready for Jesus as you walk through this life? Realizing that he's greater than whatever comes. Do you know Jesus at all? So today, you have the opportunity to believe in Jesus. This greater Jesus. Believe that Jesus is God's son. Believe that he died so all of your sins would be forgiven. Believe then that he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And if you believe that, you're granted salvation. You're granted salvation. And everyone can be saved if you believe in that. Paul wrote that in Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Quoting from the book of Joel. It's Old Testament and New Testament. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Do you want to be saved today? Do you want to know Jesus today? All you have to do is believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And I'd love to talk to you about it. I'll be standing right down here at the front at the end of the service. Jared, our, our associate pastor, will be standing in the back. So you don't, maybe you don't want to walk down the, the aisle here and talk to me. That's fine. Talk to Jared. Maybe the polo intimidates you a little bit. Jared's a t-shirt. His shirt says, saved. You want to get saved? There you go. Do you want to know Jesus today? Maybe today what you need to do is you need to better align with him. Better be ready for him. Have a better recalibrated focus on Jesus being greater. Then I would ask you to come and pray. Pray down here at the steps. Pray for your own heart. Pray for your own readiness. Maybe somebody in your life who's struggling with the truth of Jesus being greater. Come and pray for them. And let's walk together towards Jesus.